It's podcasting time! This is Just Another Jerk, Dispatches from Japan. As always, I'm your host, Jonathan Isaacson. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever it is that you cast your pods. Probably Apple Podcasts, maybe over on Spotify, one or two of you on Stitcher maybe, Google Podcasts is a thing. Um, We're now on Pandora, at least in the U.S., which is, I think, the only place you can listen to Pandora, but... You can check it out there now. So the podcast, yeah, it's been a minute. I'm trying to get the podcast back on track, and I know I have said that before, and it didn't happen. Um, Yeah, just too many papers I was working on, presentations to take care of, all of that. And yeah, sorry about that. But I have a good, okay, good's not the right word for it. Uh, It's not happy you know, uplifting kind of story today. It's definitely more of a uh, grisly and uh, sad story, um, but it's an interesting story. So yeah, it's, and it's a history thing. So uh, I guess this goes into our everything you never want, wanted to know about Japanese history uh, series. So let's jump on in. The location, Sankebets in northern Hokkaido. The year is 1915. It's December 9th at around 10.30 in the morning. Mayu, the common-law wife of Ota Saburo, is at home while her husband is out working in the farm fields. She's taking care of an infant, um, Hasumi Mikio. Perhaps she is cleaning the wood and thatch pioneer's cabin. Maybe she's beginning preparations for lunch. Suddenly... A monster appears and attacks Mayu and Mikio. The creature is more than two and a half meters tall and weighs 340 kilograms. It attacks, biting poor little Mikio on the head. Mayu tries to fight back, throwing firewood at the beast, but she is overtaken and can't escape. The monster knocks her over and drags her off through the window out into the surrounding woods. By the time her husband and other villagers arrive at the Ota family farmhouse, Mikio is dead, and Mayu is gone. The scene looks like a slaughterhouse, blood pooling on the floor. Mikio and Mayu are the first victims of the monster, but they won't be the last. Of course, it wasn't any supernatural monster that killed Abe Mayu and Hasumi Mikio. Rather, it was an enormous Ezo brown bear that did it. And before we go any further, I want to emphasize that the bear is not to blame for what it did. It's a wild animal doing wild animal things, which were greatly influenced by the things the humans were doing in its natural habitat. So calling it a monster, calling it a beast, it's a bit unfair. If we're being honest, it's actually very unfair. Bear just doing things how bear do. Let's talk a little bit about Hokkaido. Now, this is a topic that I know deserves its own episode eventually, and I promise I will get there eventually. So, really, it's on my list of things to do someday. Hokkaido is one of the four main islands of Japan. Honshu, of course, is the main island. That's where Tokyo, Kyoto, Osaka, um, all those places. That's where those are. Those are all in Honshu. Down in the far south um, west, you have Kyushu, 
which has Fukuoka, Nagasaki, some other stuff. Uh, Shikoku. Shikoku is the kind of often the odd one out, but it's down there next to Fukuoka. Shikoku, there's not a lot of really famous places on it. Certainly nothing that gets international mention. It's a very nice place, but in terms of PR, it's definitely fourth of four when it comes to the main islands. So like I say, Kyushu, Shikoku, those are down southwest of Honshu, and they have a much longer history within Japan as a country than the last of the four main islands, Hokkaido. Hokkaido has kind of, sort of been part of Japan for hundreds of years, but it was long left mostly untouched by the Yamato, the ethnic Japanese. Largely, it was left to the indigenous peoples, um, the Ainu and their ancestors before them, and it wasn't called Hokkaido. That's a much more modern name. It was called Ezo, which is the name of the bear I mentioned, the Ezo brown bear. That's where it comes from. So Hokkaido, much much more modern name than Ezo. Ezo is a much older name. It's also a name of some of the peoples who lived up there. But once the Meiji era rolled around, so we're talking late 1800s, early 1900s, the Japanese government decided to really push the settlement of Hokkaido, which was the name at this point. They had changed the name now. And to this end, many, many Japanese settlers were sent up to the wilderness that was Hokkaido. Now, up to this point, Japan had a few settlements down in the far southern tip of Hokkaido, um, Hakodate, Hakodate area, if you are at all familiar with Japanese geography. But come the late 1800s, more and more villages, towns were being settled all over the wilderness of Hokkaido. And there was a lot of wilderness. And still, to this day, if you look at a map of Hokkaido, even today, you will see a lot of green. Much of the island is still virgin or nearly virgin wilderness. In terms of population density, Hokkaido is one one-hundredth the density of Tokyo. So all this is to say that, yeah, Hokkaido... Once you leave the urban areas, you know, your, your Sapporo, Hakodate, Asaikawa, a few others, it's really sparsely populated. There's not a lot of people there. And this sparsity of people means that to this day, there are a lot of wild animals roaming the woods of Hokkaido. And these wild animals include the Ezo brown bear, which is a large species of brown bear. They rival grizzlies in size, actually. The largest individuals of the Ezo brown bear population would, in fact, be within the normal size range of Kodiak brown bears. And Kodiaks are the largest brown bear species. Now, of course, the largest Ezo bears, they would be on the small end of the normal range, but they would still be, they would not be out of place with Kodiak bears. I guess, you know, what I'm trying to say here, the brown bears in Hokkaido are big Biggie, big, big, big. And they're still very common in Hokkaido. I mean, even in Sapporo. I remember it was a couple years ago. I can't, maybe two, maybe three years ago. I, there was this string of sightings of a mother and two cubs in Sapporo. Now, they weren't in the center of city. They were kind of on the outskirts, but it was still, you know, it was Sapporo. There was a mother and her two cubs 
They were spotted in parks and playgrounds in several areas, kind of concentrated around one area, but kind of moving around one kind of area in southern um, Sapporo. You know, not something you really want to have happening, you know, parks with, you know, human kids around them as well. But, I mean, that's just part of life in Hokkaido. And it always has been that way. So that's kind of our big picture setting for our story. Let's talk a little bit about the specific area where all this happened. So the area is called Sankebets, which is a very, very Ainu-type name, of which there are many, many, many in Hokkaido. You know, not, not really our focus today, but there are lots of Ainu names in Hokkaido. Now, Sankebets is up in northern Hokkaido, and it's part of a town called Tomamamai. There we go, I can say that. Tomamamai. And calling it part of Tomamamai is somewhat misleading to people who haven't been in rural Japan before. Now, it's better to think of these rural towns and villages more like a township, at least in the American, you know, the way American English uses township. So these towns, they're very spread out. They're a little, you have these little, uh, hamlets and villages. They're all officially part of a single town's administration, but they're all pretty far flung and a lot of times they're very independent. And this would have been even more so the case a hundred years ago when the area was still really the frontier to the Japanese settlers. So Sankebets is in the middle of the mountains, like really, really in the middle of nowhere, even by Hokkaido standards. It's on a small river, creek, stream thing going up into the mountains. Um, it's only about 11 kilometers from the coast, but it's a middle of nowhere mountains and forests 11 kilometers. And it's a good 25 kilometers going downstream towards Tomamomai. Now, I couldn't find the census figures for 1915 when the, uh, this, this incident happened. But in 1920, there were over 6,000 people in, Toma, in Tomamai. So not tiny. Um, it certainly wasn't a big place. But yeah, 6,000, which is actually bigger than the population today. Um, again, I'll talk about that when I talk about Hokkaido eventually. But yeah, Tomamai, not tiny. And Sankebets is a part of that population. And it, yeah, so it was... Yeah, you could, but it was not really in the center of Tomomai. It was kind of far out. So you've got this little hamlet deep in the woods, up a small river, surrounded by mountains and trees, which are home to a bunch of bears, or at least one bear. And part of the push to settle Hokkaido was to create farms, which meant clearing land that was the natural habitat for these Ezo brown bears, and the people of Sankebets seem to have cleared the land that was the home of one particularly large and aggressive brown bear who was later, well, he actually he already was dubbed this, but we'll get into it later. But this bear was dubbed Kesagake, which roughly translates as he who slashes diagonally from the shoulder. Now, if you know anything about bears, you probably know that they are known to hibernate, and Ezo brown bears are no exception. And December, 
Northern Hokkaido means it should have been hibernating time for Keisagake, but he hadn't been able to eat his fill before going to hi- into hibernation, and so it would seem that he woke up much earlier than he should have and was hungry. And from what I have read, and I mean, it makes sense, that tends to make bears more aggressive. I mean, basically, he was hangry. We have a hangry bear. And so this sets the scene for the tragedy that would happen in December of 1915. But there was a prelude in November of that same year. So in mid-November, members of the Ikeda family, another family in the, in the hamlet, saw a large bear near their house. Now the bear spooked the family horse, but fled, taking only some of the recently harvested corn. The bear showed up again on the 20th of November, and the head of the Ikeda household called on his son and two matagi, they're, it's a, they're a hunters, to protect, and so the, family, the head of the house calls his son and the two hunters to come and protect the family and their property. The bear showed up yet again on the 30th of November, and one of the men who was protecting the house shot the bear and wounded it, but the bear escaped back into the woods, leaving a trail of blood in the snow. The men tracked the bear, but a snowstorm forced them to turn back. The men thought that the bear would now have a fear of humans having been shot, and they figured the village was probably safe from the bear for now. But, a little more than a week later, the bear reappeared in the village at the Ota family house where Mayu was taking care of little Mikio, and we've already talked about the carnage that the villagers found inside the Thatch farmhouse on December 9th. So as I've mentioned, Sankebetsu was rural, I mean really rural by Japanese standards, and it was a farming community. Houses weren't exactly right next to each other, and the men would have been out in the fields at the time of the bear attack. Remember, this is 10.30 in the morning. It wasn't until about 3 p.m. when someone came back to the house and discovered Mikio's body and the blood-spattered house. So apparently, the bear had dragged Mayu through the window and off into the woods. Clumps of what was presumably her hair, of Mayu's hair, were found stuck in the uh, in the window on the windowsill. Now, I, I guess I should mention briefly the house. It's a thatch house, and there's no glass pane in the window. It's an open window. So even though this is uh, even though this is, this is November, December, the windows are still going to be open for uh, cooking fires. You got to have some some way to let the the, the uh, smoke out. But yeah, so this is a thatch house that we're talking about, and so the bear seems to have dragged Mayu out the window. So, like I say, this is, this is about 3 p.m. when this, when they find, when, when people really kind of start to find out what's going on. So, clumps, like I say, clumps of hair were in the window. And the problem, though, is this is northern Hokkaido in December. So, by 3 p.m., it's already starting to get too dark to go out into the woods to search for Mayu and the bear. So the villagers prepared to do those sorts of things, to make a search party, go search for Mayu. Well, they probably at this point were already thinking just her remains. And they, so they started to do this preparing for the next day. 
And so early the next day, so we're December 10th here, a group of 30 men from the area assembled with guns, of course. I mean, this is a rural hunt. This is a rural village. There are wild animals. People have guns, of course. And so they get ready to search for Mayu's body and to either capture or kill, most likely kill, the bear. They set out into the woods near the Ota family house, and they'd only traveled about 150 meters into the woods when they spotted Keisagake, the bear. Five men managed to fire their rifles. Only one of them hit the bear, and the bear was only wounded, and he fled deeper into the woods. The search party found dried blood where the bear had been, and they dug into the snow, and they found, at that spot, Mayu's corpse, or at least part of her corpse. All that remained of her body was her head and her lower legs, which were still wearing the tabi and kyahan, which the, so tabi are the split-toed socks, and kyahan are kind of gaiters. So her, her legs were still in those. And this grisly discovery, no pun intended, I promise, this discovery proved that the bear was indeed the same one that had attacked the day before. Some of the villagers regrouped at the Ota house to perform funeral rites for Mayu and Mikio. They were convinced that the bear would return, and they figured that now the bear knew that humans were a potential food source, and it would be back for more. Another group of men, about 50 from both Sankebets and neighboring villages and hamlets, were stationed at uh, they were stationed with hunting rifles at the nearby Mioke House, which is some 300 meters away from the Ota House. At around 8 p.m. that night, the bear made a return to the Ota House. Some reports say that the bear attacked the coffins, scattering Mikio and Mayu's remains, and that Mikio's parents and Mayu's husband and other mourners escaped injury by climbing into the rafters of the house. According to these reports, it was all this commotion that scared the bear off. Other reports say that during the panic and the darkness, it was, and this is rural Hokkaido in a, on a winter night. So other reports are saying that in this darkness, one man, in, one man managed to fire a shot at the bear. The bear wasn't hit, but the gunfire scared it off and the bear fled along the river. So either, either way, the bear has fled. And by now, all of the men from the Miyoke house had arrived. So let's say about 300 meters. So not next door, but not too far. Not, not right by, but, you know, close enough that they would hear a big commotion and they could come running. And so they all arrived and all of the men started to follow what they thought was the bear's trail. They thought wrong. The bear had, in fact, headed towards the Miyoke house where the women and children were taking refuge. The group of nearly 50 men with rifles and other weapons who had been at the house until they went off after the bear had only left a single man, a man named Odo, to guard the women and children. Yayo, who was the wife of Miyoke Yastaro, so he's the head of the Miyoke house, so she, she's, she would be the, the lady of the house, I guess you could say, she was carrying her youngest son, Umekich, on her back and cooking when everyone remaining in the Miyoke house heard a rumbling from outside. 
Before anyone could do anything, the bear burst into the house, toppling the cooking pot, which doused the hearth. In the ensuing chaos, the oil lamp was also extinguished, plunging the house with a rampaging bear in it into almost complete darkness. Yayo was trying to flee the bear, but her second son, Yujiro, was clinging to her legs, and she tripped. The bear attacked and bit her and Umekichi. Odo, he's the lone person left behind to guard the women and the children, he ran for the door, and seeing this motion, the bear released Yayo and Umekichi and lunged for Odo and clawed the man in the back. Yayo and some of her children managed to flee at this point, though she and Umekichi were both badly injured. The bear turned his attack on some of the remaining children, mauling and killing Miyoke Kinzo, Saito Iwao, and Saito Haruyoshi. So the, so the two Saito boys were sons of another, local another one of the local families taking refuge at the Miyoke family house. After killing the boys, the bear turned on Saito Take, so the mother of the two Saito boys. The bear turned on Saito Take, who was pregnant at the time. According to later accounts, as the bear was attacking her, she begged the bear to attack her upper body and leave the baby alone. The bear did in fact leave the baby alone. After the attack, the fetus was found still moving, though it died shortly thereafter. Take died in the attack. The bear mauled and ate part of her upper body. The men who had been tracking the bear at this point realized that they were on the wrong track, quite literally, and they returned to the Miyoke family house, only to find the badly injured Yayo staggering towards them, telling them what had happened. The men then raced to the Miyoke house and could hear the sounds of the ongoing attack. Some in the party were convinced that it was likely that no survivors remained, and they suggested burning the house down as a way to either flush the bear out or to kill it. Yayo, believing, correctly, that some of the children in the house were still alive, strictly forbade the men from setting the place ablaze. So, the men split into two groups. One group around the back of the house to raise a ruckus and flush the bear out of the house, and one group near the door with rifles ready to shoot once the bear fled the house. However, the bear fled in such a direction that most of the men were blocked from getting a clear shot, and the only man who had a clear line of sight, his gun misfired. It was 1915. Guns weren't as reliable as they might be today. The bear escaped again into the dark night of the woods. The men, with birch bark torches, entered the Miyoke house and saw the damage the bear had done. As Yayo had suspected, some of the children were still alive, including her son and daughter, Rikizo and Hisano. At this point, most of the villagers moved to the local school to shelter for the night. The most seriously injured and wounded were taken to another nearby farmhouse, the Tsuji family farmhouse. Now, it might seem like kind of a bad idea after all. The bear had already fatally attacked the villagers in two houses, 
So just moving to another house might seem kind of dumb, but the school was a good seven kilometers down the river. You know, not an easily traversed distance in the snow by heavily injured people. I have to assume that the villagers at this point had learned their lesson and made sure a guard of several men would have stayed at the Tsuji house no matter what they heard. Anyway, I, I didn't see anything for sure, but I, I'm guessing at this point they knew this. Someone's got to stay there. Now, Saito Ishigoro, who was Take's husband, he had left for central Tomomai after the initial attack to let the authorities know about the attack at the Ota family farmhouse. Remember, this is, it's 25 kilometers. This is 1915. So that's the better part of a day just to get, you know, to Tomomai. So he had gone to report what had happened and didn't know what had happened, you know, what happened to his wife and children. And due to the distance back to Sankebets, he stayed the night in central Tomomai. Miyoke Yastaro, the head of the Miyoke family, and Yayo's husband, he had set out for Onishika, which is a town just south of Tomomai, to find a man named Yamamoto Heikichi. Yamamoto was a famed bear hunter, and um, Miyoke went to see if he could, if, if Yamamoto could be of any help. I didn't find exactly when Yasutaro left Sankebets to go looking for the bear hunter, but it's possible that he too was unaware of the fate of his family when he set out. My guess is that probably he didn't know about the attack on his own house until after the fact. I couldn't find a mention of that definite, any definite mentions in either the Japanese or the English sources I looked at, but it's my guess is that he probably didn't know. Regardless, Miyoka Yastaro found Yamamoto, who had sold his guns for booze money at some point. Yamamoto said he was out of the bear hunting business, apparently in favor of the local drunkard business, so he wasn't a whole lot of help. He did, however, say that he thought the bear might be Kesagake, who I mentioned before, the name I mentioned before, and he, he turns out to be right. And Kesagake is a bear that was blamed for the mauling deaths of three other women in the area in the past. So Yastaro Miyoke, Miyoke Yastaro also had to stay the night away from Sankebets. He stayed in um, Onishika. Now the next day, so now we're on December 11th, so the day after the Miyoke family house and two days after the Ota family house were attacked. So, uh, December 11th, Saito Ishigoro and Miyoke Yastaro returned to Sankebets and found the villagers at the school, and they learned the extent of the attack from the previous day. Most of the villagers were convinced that the bear would return. So a hunting party was formed with the sole purpose of killing the bear. And at this point, I don't think anyone could blame them. So the hunting party returned to the Miyoke family house to wait for the bear to return, but Keisagake did not appear on the 11th. By the 12th, news had reached central, the central Hokkaido government, and a police sniper team from nearby Hoboro, which is 
modern-day Haboro. They changed one letter, well, in the English spelling of it, I should say. So a police sniper unit from the nearby town was organized and dispatched to Sankevitz. And this team was led by Chief Inspector Suga. Suga went to inspect the scene of the Miyoke house and assess possible options for dealing with the bear. Throughout the day of the 12th, however, no sign of the bear was observed. Guessing that, you know, all the commotion and movement might have kept the bear away at least for a bit. Suga and others decided that the bear needed to be eliminated regardless of what resources would be necessary. So a plan was formulated. It was well known that Ezo brown bears often stash some of their food and come back for it later when they're hungry again. So the plan was to use one of the corpses as a lure to bring the bear back to the Miyoke house. The Ota, Saito, and Miyoke families were all strongly against the plan. Not surprising, really. They were the ones who had lost family members. But for the future of the village, it was eventually decided that this was the best plan. And it almost worked, sort of. By this point, apparently, Yamamoto Heikich, the bear hunter who had sold his guns for booze money, he had been talked into helping out, and he joined the six-man sniper team, presumably with a borrowed rifle, because remember, he sold his guns. And the snipers waited in the Miyoke house, I guess with a dead body. Um, sounds fun. Mm. Anyway, yeah, so, so the sniper team waited in the Miyoke family house, waiting for Keisagake to show up. The bear did show up, but he didn't enter the house. He stopped outside the house, sniffed around a little bit, seemed to be checking out the house, and then headed back into the woods before anyone in the sniper team could get a shot at the bear. And the bear stayed away the rest of the day. Apparently, though, Keisagake had gone back to the empty Ota house at some point during this day. Early on the morning of the 13th, a team found the house ransacked. The bear had eaten the family's winter food stockpile, which could also explain why the bear was staying away from the Miyoke family house. It had some food in its belly, and it wasn't quite as urgently looking for something else to eat. By that day, we're on the 13th now. By that day, there were 60 armed men ready to hunt for the bear. And it was decided that it was time to start actively searching for the bear. Waiting in ambush for the bear hadn't worked. So I guess they thought it was time to take the fight to the bear or something. I mean, part of the rationale was that Keisagake was showing that he didn't fear humans. He'd already eaten a couple of people. And it seemed a realistic possibility that once he got hungry again, he would come looking for humans. I mean, we aren't the best equipped animals when it comes to defending ourselves from attack. You know, no thick hides or heavy coats of hair, no claws or club-like tails or anything. I mean, yeah, if a human's got a gun, he or she can take on most any animal. But if the gun misfires or jams or in some other way malfunctions, which were, you know, pretty common in the early 1900s from everything I've ever read and seen. Humans are an easy target for an aggressive 
apex predator like a 300 plus kilogram Ezo brown bear. So, yeah, Chief Inspector Suga decided that the bear had to be dispatched. So the men hunted for the bear. They set up sentries all around the village, including one man watching the bridge over the river. At about 8 p.m. that night, the sentry at the bridge thought he saw something moving on the opposite bank of the river. He called out to Suga, who was nearby. Suga came to the bridge, and thinking that the shadowy figure could possibly be a man, Suga called out but got no response from the shadow, and figuring it was probably a wild animal and quite possibly the bear they were hunting, Suga ordered the snipers to open fire. Men fired across the river and from the bridge, but the figure in the shadows ran away back into the darkness of the wooded mountains. So the next morning, now we're on the 14th, nearly a week since the attack of the Oda house, the men investigated in the morning light the spot where they had seen the shadows. Indeed, they found large bare footprints, as well as bloodstains. It seems that at least one of the shots from the previous night had struck the bear. Given the fact that Keisagake had likely been wounded again, coupled with the fact that a major snowstorm was threatening, which would have obliterated any tracks in the snow, it was decided that this was the group's best chance at finally hunting down and killing the bear. Which, again, while I'm not one for hunting, in most cases, I abhor the idea of hunting, this is one I get. Kesagake needed to be dealt with, and in 1915 rural Hokkaido, that meant killing him. There was no tranquilizing him and taking him to the, you know, some even more remote location where he'd never encounter humans or taking him to some sort of a game preserve. There was none of that in rural Hokkaido in 1915. He was genuinely a threat to any human who was in the area. We'll talk about the issue of whether or not people should have been there in the first place in a few minutes. We'll put a pin in that thought. We'll get back there. But for now, this killer bear was wounded. A snowstorm was looming, and this was the best chance for the hunting party to eliminate an imminent threat. Yamamoto Heikich, the famed bear hunter turned former bear hunter, and apparently drunk and back to a bear hunter, along with a local guide, Ikeda Kamejiro, I think probably part of the, uh, the, the Ikeda family who had the encounters in November. No one died in those, but remember we talked about that, the... Uh, Bear came and spooked the horse and took some corn. I think this is an Ikeda from that family. So Yamamoto, along with Ikeda Kamejiro, set off after the bear. So Yamamoto, who initially had refused all requests to help, had softened his stance upon hearing of the second attack, the one at the Miyoke family house, that spurred the creation of the police-led hunting party. He was, after all, famed in the area as a bear hunter. He decided that a team of two, himself and his guide Ikeda, would be the best to quickly track the bear. So Ikeda was familiar with the land, and Yamamoto was familiar with, with Keisagake. So they found the bear resting under a tree just a little further up the trail, and they were able to get within 20 meters of the bear. Yamamoto took two shots. The first struck Keisagake in the head, 
and the second struck him in the heart. The bear fell, dead. It had taken the mobilization of hundreds of people, ten tracking dogs, sixty rifles, but the Sanke bear attacks were over. The bear was dragged back to the village and an, uh, an investigation was performed. And in the bear's stomach, the villagers found parts, found body parts, proving that the bear had, in fact, eaten the villagers. And it's probably due, at least in part, to this incident that the idea of bears as man-eaters became widespread in Japan. Because in this case, at least, it was entirely true. In total, the bear killed six residents of the village, two women, four children, as well as one child in utero. One more child, Miyoke Umekichi, would never fully recover from his injuries. He died three years later. Yayo, despite being horribly injured in the attack at the Miyoke family house, she would go on to make a full recovery though you have to imagine she probably lived with some serious PTSD the rest of her life. Odo, the man who had been the sole guard that second day at the, the attacks at the Miyoke house, he also made a full recovery, although he died in an accident a year later. Apparently he fell into a river and drowned. I, I couldn't find a lot of details, but apparently he drowned in a river one year later. All the others who were injured seemed to have made recoveries, at least I didn't find anything about them not making recoveries, so I'm guessing they probably went on with their lives. The village, though, had received a fatal blow. Within a few, er within a few years, the area had become a ghost town, with the villagers deciding to move to new locations, escaping what, has, what had to have been a flashback-triggering location for a lot of people, especially young children. Because remember... The bear attacked at times when the menfolk, with their guns and other weapons, weren't around. It was the mothers and children who were trapped in the houses with, these fierce, with this fearsome creature. Now, it should be noted that the details of this story are sometimes sketchy. I've tried my best to clarify the story as much as possible based on the sources I was able to read, but nothing was officially recorded until half a century later. In the 1960s, an official from the Forestry Service in Hokkaido, a man named Kimura Moritake, did his best to investigate and leave a permanent record of the incident. He tracked down as many people as he possibly could who had lived in Sankebets and asked them for their version of the story. Many of the people who had lived through the incident were already deceased, and a lot of the living people, people who are still living, who had, had lived through the incident, were reticent to talk due to the gruesome nature of the incident. But he, uh, Kimura Moritake, he was able to piece together enough information to create some sort of permanent record of the incident, which has been turned into various forms of media over the years. Novels, manga, a movie. Today, if you go to Sankebets, there isn't a whole lot. There is a memorial to the victims of the attack, which was erected by Okawa Hariyoshi, a man who was the son of the village mayor at the time of the attacks. Hariyoshi would go on to be a prolific bear hunter himself, 
and his son, Takayoshi, would track down an enormous brown bear years later. Takayoshi's bear was even larger than Keisagake. His bear weighed in at 500 kilograms. Today, the road up to Sankebets is called Bear Road and is adorned with cute images of a cartoon mother bear and her bear cubs, a far cry from the actual history of the area. Near the site of the Ota family house, there is a a recreation of the type of homes that would have been most common in this area at the time. It's a thatch hut, essentially. Outside the house, there's this really over-the-top, enormous demon bear statue, but this is really, really out of the way in the middle of nowhere. So, what do we take from this? What do we make of this story? Is it just a grisly tale of the macabre meant to tickle some corner of the human brain that is programmed for that sort of thing? Is it some sort of a cautionary tale, a tale that we can think of about, you know, what happens if humans push too far into the wilderness? I mean, I I think there is something, you know, to that latter point. If the Japanese government of the late 1800s and early 1900s hadn't been quite so keen on pushing the settlement of Hokkaido, this incident probably never would have happened. And it's not like this area would go on to be a hugely vital part of the Japanese farming system. I mean, certainly there are areas of Hokkaido that would become that, but Tomomai and Sankevets were not destined to become that. They were not destined to become the breadbasket of Japan. The population of the area is smaller now, you know, 105 years later, than it was at the time of the bear attacks. It's about half of it, in fact. At the time... It wasn't as though the victims can be blamed, though. You know, they weren't. They were there because their families had gone there. And their families were there because the government was pushing people to go there. So, no one. I don't think there's anyone really to blame. I mean, we could. Short of the government. There are not individual actors that we can blame in this story. I mostly think it was just a case of everything that could go wrong going wrong. There was an exceptionally aggressive bear. Remember, I mean, if, if the reports are correct, and Keisagake, the bear that attacked Sankebetsu, was the same Keisagake that was res- was rumored to be responsible for the deaths of three other women in the area before the rampage, we have a very aggressive bear on our hands. There were new settlers in a place where animals weren't yet accustomed to human presence. And humans, they were just doing their best to survive in the wilderness, which led them to encroaching on this aggressive bear's habitat. It's just this perfect storm, to use an overly trite cliche. But Mother Nature told the humans that they were really not welcome in this particular spot. And by and large, humans took that message to heart. I mean, yes, the road up to Sankebet still exists, but there's not a lot up there. I mean, looking at Google Maps, it looks like it's probably less developed now than it was in 1915, with the exception of the mostly paved road. The last couple kilometers up to the site of the attacks look like there's still a gravel road, so the residents of the village 
might very well still recognize their surroundings in 2020. And that is where we will end it. Hopefully, I can get back to making episodes fairly regularly, but, I mean, I've said that before, so no promises, obviously. Uh, Please, make sure you subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Make sure to rate it and give it a review if you're feeling nice. Uh, Share it with a friend. Share with an enemy. Share with a frenemy. Share with your pet dog. Your horse. Whatever. Share it. You can find the Twitter for this podcast at JustAnotherCast, where you can get bite-sized nuggets of Japanese history. There is a Facebook page as well. Just search for Just Another Jerk Podcast. Like the page. You can get your history nuggets over there, too. You can send email to justanotherjerkpodcast at gmail.com. I am always happy to get suggestions or requests. Fan mail. I don't get fan mail. I'll never get fan mail. No one listens to this. Well, I can dream, right? Someday someone will listen and maybe send an email. And on that note, I'm out. Peace. Peace.